Welcome to the How Great Events Happen podcast. I'm Brooke. And I'm Cody. And we are your podcast hosts coming to you from the Cvent Podcast Studio in beautiful downtown Portland, Oregon. Before we get to today's topic, read more about today's episode on the Cvent blog at cvent.com slash podcast. You guys know we love hearing from you, so email us at podcast at cvent.com. In today's episode, we're talking to Judy James about the social psychology of event planners. You know, it was really interesting learning about how you can tell if you are, quote unquote, winning the conversation. She has so many valuable insights, which really isn't surprising considering she's published several books on the topic. That's right. And Brooke, and how cool was it that she was talking to us live from Cvent Connect Europe? I bet that session was outstanding. For sure. Yeah. So I'm so excited for our audience to hear more. So here is our interview with Judy James. Judy, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I know it's been quite a day over there at Cvent Connect Europe, so we really appreciate you taking the time. It's wonderfully busy but uplifting, I would call it here at the moment. That's so great to hear. Um, well, and we heard you just spoke at a session called Social Psychology for Event Organizers. How did that go? It's um, yes, it sounds very sort of grand, doesn't it? It's a really good fun down to earth session, but um, I, I loved it because I got them to join in. It's about things like body language, first impressions, um, the attribution effect, and a lot of it about the way that we sell to the limbic part of the brain when we're dealing with people. So, uh, how we can use our charisma to actually attain a sale that might not be logically what the client was thinking. It's, it's inspiring people to buy rather than just working on, on logic and facts. Oh, interesting. Can you describe this uh, foot in the door and the door in the face phenomenon that we heard a little bit about? Yeah, I mean, it's quite simple, really. I, I, I think that there's ways that we deal with people where almost immediately, because it's an animal survival response, uh, I think most of us, when we've had somebody trying to persuade or influence us to do something or even be a leader or give orders, I think there will be a part of the brain that will either accept that or be interested in it or want to hear more or will reject, in a way, the person. And I know that sounds rather harsh it's the slamming the door that sometimes there's something about the way that we're dealing with that person or the way that we're maybe even presenting ourselves in terms of our authenticity or lack of it that mentally the door has slammed before we've even got a chance to get that foot in the door it worries me slightly with a foot in the door tag to put on it because I think it's creating the right first impression. Like I said to everybody, you need to hit the ground running. But for me, a lot of that, and it boils down to really one one phrase or mantra that I used, which is before you try and persuade or influence anybody about anything, always make sure that you persuaded yourself first. And there's something about people that look inspired by their own messages that usually that foot will go in the door, even if... Um, it might not be exactly what they want, but they will listen to you and they will usually be inspired by you. That's so interesting. It's kind of like making the connection before you even start a business conversation. Absolutely. I, you know, a lot of my work is based on animal behaviors because obviously we are animals. Um, and an animal meeting a strange animal for the first time, and anybody that's got cats and dogs will know this, 
there's always that first moment when they will just literally look at one another and be working out whether this animal might mean them harm or whether they're going to fight or what they're going to do. And although as humans, we clearly should be more sophisticated than that and shouldn't base our decisions on stereotypical thinking, because it's a survival response. It's something that will always happen, even when somebody doesn't want it to. So it can literally be make or break within the first few moments, how you do your greeting rituals, etc. So a lot of very basic stuff like that, if we don't get it right, it leads to what's called the attribution bias, which is where humans like to think that they're right when they see other people and make their minds up. And they will often actually just ask you questions or deal with you in a way to prove their first conclusions about you right. And your background, I mean, it sounds so interesting the way that you've approached this social psychology. And do you mind telling us a little bit more about your background in social psychology and the behavioral analysis that you do? I predated a lot of, particularly with the body language work. Um, I mean, my career's gone well over 40 years. Um, and there was very little that was done. Uh, clearly, social psychology, et cetera, there's always been massive amount of work done on it. But I was pretty much working as a writer and lecturer and being asked to advise people on things like interview techniques I did a lot with uh, work with a lot of school leavers who maybe were trying to overcome shyness or a kind of lack of confidence in those days that isn't quite as prevalent with young school leavers these days maybe but I was also working as an associate for a big corporate training and campaigning organization so they were both bringing me in in a way for my expertise but what I've loved is the way that it was very very much needs driven for there so I've always been really listening to people in business. It, it helped me to talk to people in industry and find out the evolution of what's been going on. So it's been very corporate based and it's obviously dealt with the changes that have gone on with social media and all of that stuff as well. So it, it's kind of grown and evolved from the basics over about 40 years. And I've written 26 books in that time. Wow, 40 years. So, well, with 40 years, I got to know, what are the signs that you're winning the conversations with your stakeholders? Now, this is where I always advise people. I'm slightly counterintuitive to a lot of other people who um, do work in the kind of field that I work in because I think it's very easy to say to people, you know, look for this body language signal, look for their eye expression, look for their eye direction, etc. I'm very passionate about the fact that body language is not a precise science. And I think that sometimes when people go out almost overarmed with tips and what this gesture means and what that gesture means, I think sometimes they will get the wrong reading. What I always work with people to do is to be aware and be wary and um, look at the other person's body language. It needs to go in with their tone of voice um, and it needs to go in with the words that they're using. And to do that, the important thing is to get them to talk to you and to show active listening signals. But try not to be too put off because I think some people can look quite dour when they're listening to somebody pitching to them. Some people look quite blank. Some people look disconnected. They might be looking down or even looking at their watch or something like that. It's very important that we're not too negative in our readings. So I would normally say, look, if you see that kind of signaling going on, 
maybe pause slightly and ask them if, um, did you not agree with that last point that I made? Or can I explain a little bit more about that? But I always remember one of the best salespeople that I ever met said that it's probably better not to overread body language because you need to sort of carry on. However, you should be tailoring what you're doing. So what I've done a lot in the session today is looking at transactional analysis, looking at the different body language and behavioral states that the person might have moved into while you're speaking to them. They needn't be negative, but it may be that you might need to use a little bit of mirroring or you can maybe go and pick them up in that state and bring them back to adult state where they're a little bit more receptive, a little less emotional. So it, it's a constant flowing thing rather than being overly prescriptive. Yeah, I like that idea. It's like, don't overanalyze it, but really kind of just like be on your feet and just pay attention to what's right in front of you. Are there any like, you know, telltale signs that a conversation is really going sour though or awry? Yeah, I think when people are actually displeased or disagree with something that you've said, most business people will be quite open about showing that. And often because they're wanting you to notice the fact that they've disagreed with something that you've said or they weren't sure. I even see it at conferences where I've got an audience of, say, 200 people. I'm constantly tuned in for the signals. It might be slight puckering of the eyebrows. A lot of it is eyebrow-based, funnily enough. You might get um, an eyebrow shrug where the eyebrows just go up and down. They often will look at the ceiling slightly as though they're accessing the more reflective side of their mind, weighing it up in their mind. So a lot of signals like that, or maybe a slight head tilt, will be almost like an actor showing the fact that, you know, I'm not sure about that bit, not sure that I agree with that. So those signals usually are a little bit more linear because they want you to notice, they want you to pick up on that cue so that you will question them and make sure that you can then reassure them or give them the detail that they're needing. Okay, so if I'm ever in a situation like that, what techniques do you recommend for course correcting the conversation and getting, you know, more of what you want? I think the very human response is to talk more. <laughs> you, know, you often see people and they think, oh, maybe I said the wrong thing there or they didn't agree with that bit. And in a kind of panic, people often will fall into verbal or nonverbal body language diarrhea. So they become even more fluent speaking more and you know, they'll leave the room thinking, oh, I think I, I managed to get over that slight hiccup. That's not a good way to do it, though. The better way is to, if you've shown all along that you're tuned into the person, that you're not just making a little speech by yourself, that it's a two-way conversation even when you are speaking. People like that. They're flattered by it. They like to think that you want their opinions, etc. So as long as you've built up that relationship non-verbally and verbally, I think just the point of pausing, not stopping in mid-flow or looking defensive, but just pausing a slight head tilt, looking at the person. Have you got a problem? Was that maybe I didn't explain it? Is there something else you'd like to hear about that? Um, was there a question? So not making it sound as though you've got into sort of brewing conflict because they disagree with you. I think it's deeply important that moments like that will be when the client will tell you their thoughts and that's always going to be valuable because that way you you know what they're thinking and that means that you can deal with the point that they're raising. So it's a good thing rather than a bad thing. And as I say, being very careful not to self-diminish, not to step back and not to get defensive. And this is a lot of 
this kind of one-on-one interaction. Like if I'm having a conversation with Cody and he's nodding or I see his eyebrows raised, you know, this is like a way of me understanding how he is absorbing the information I'm trying to tell him. But what about when we're talking about big audiences or events? Is there a way that you can transfer some of these learnings to how you observe your event attendees and possibly even course correct if you think they're not having the greatest time? Yeah, I'd always say don't be intimidated or change your behavior with larger groups, really. I think, for instance, if you're speaking at an event, there are always a lot of one persons out there rather than a a mass of people. And if you're at a networking event, and clearly if you're hosting it, you've got to be a lot more active. And I think in a way that part of the job is a little bit easier because it is your job if you're hosting or you're busy networking, it is your job to go up and read people and notice, are they by themselves? Are they looking slightly anxious? I mean, I've just walked through the hotel lobby at the event that I'm here now, and immediately two hosts came up that didn't know who I was and said, can I help you looking a bit lost? And I completely was. So that inquiry will always go down a lot better anyway. So I think people can be a little bit intimidated, whereas in actual fact, it's often what people do want and if you're speaking to a group networking with a group or a a larger event just make sure that as you're looking around you're looking and glancing at everybody and keeping them all within your beam of eye contact without looking as though you're over staring or anything like that but it's the same techniques but just used with more people I think often we get slightly intimidated and think that we should behave in a different way but each of those people are only seeing themselves as individuals. So notice them in the same way as you would on a one-to-one and be as alert as you would be on a one-to-one. One thing that worries me when people are speaking, pitching or whatever, or networking, I think they're nervous about doing it. And the worst result of the nervousness is that they become too self-focused. How am I looking? What are they thinking of me? How am I coming across? Do I look stupid? Do I sound confident? And I often say you've got to lose that narcissistic tendency. It's not about you. It's certainly not all about you. Try and make it about them rather than yourself. You know, the key phrase for me is it's not always what you say or what you do. It's how you make other people feel. And you can only master that if you're tuning into them more than you're tuning into yourself. This is really hitting home for me. I really, this is is so interesting to me because, I mean, I basically, the question I asked was, you know, how do you treat a room full of people? And your response is, it's not a room full of people. It's a room full of individuals. And you really still need to make those kind of one-on-one connections. That's that's right. And I mean, you know, we get a lot of politicians in the UK that just because they're addressing a large group, they start speaking in really archaic speech patterns. You know, they won't abbreviate any words. We will do so and so rather than will. They lose any colloquialism. And immediately when you do that, and maybe even dressing differently or standing differently because you think, oh, no, I've got to change who I am for this large audience. You alienate the audience. That's only to them. I'm just one person watching you. I'm, all right, I'm part of a group, but I, I'm relating to you on one-to-one. And it's important not to lose sight of that. We actually did an interview with a fairly fairly popular MC, Master of Ceremonies, and he told us that if he is speaking and he starts hearing people cough, he knows he's lost the audience. Do you do you agree with that? 
you need to be a reverse paranoid <laughs> when you're doing these things. Unfortunately, there's another syndrome. Now, I, I, if it was me, I would be looking at the other syndrome, which is that if somebody, often an audience, are all dying to clear their throats. We've seen it at the theatre where everybody's choking on their tonsils, but nobody wants to cough <laughs> because the actor's on stage and it's quiet. And then one person clears their throat. Oh, thank goodness, we can all do it now. So I, I'm not always sure it's a sign of disinterest. I think it's often a sign of relief that oh uh, they've coughed so that means that that's my cue that I can cough now so I wouldn't absolutely take it as that what I might see it's more important to look for metronomic gesticulation and that will be things like foot tapping finger tapping I love it when conferences give away free pens where they click. Don't ever do that because it will be like a field of crickets going off if people get bored. But anything that has got a slight metronomic tendency of tapping, that can be more of a sign. But I certainly wouldn't worry about the coughing particularly, but the tapping might make me think, oh, maybe I'll get them. And I don't get put off. Just think to yourself, I'll just get them to join and do a nice, painful little exercise that will serve them right for looking bored. So interesting. <laughs> this is so fascinating. Um, you know, Judy, what resources are available for our audience to learn more? Well, any of my books, I suppose. I mean, I, probably the one that covered everything. I, I finished off, my last book was one that was supposed to encompass every question that I've ever been asked by anybody that I've trained. And that's called the Body Language Bible. And it, it goes through specific situations and scenarios and networking and all that sort of thing. So hopefully, if that doesn't cover everything, somebody should get back to me and I will cry, but I will work on the next book that will. That sounds good. And for our audience, we'll go ahead and put a, a link to that book in the description. So Judy, is there anything else you feel like this audience needs to know about social psychology for event organizers? The only thing that the biggest advice, most of the most powerful messages are very simple, like the one about selling your messages to yourself. When you do that, your body language will normally be congruent. It will look genuine because you are speaking the truth. Where I worry sometimes is when people uh, start to look at putting headings on people where for, as a sort of shortcut, they like to think, oh, that person's obviously this, this and this, little names that they put to people. And anything to do with the psychology of people that you're meeting in the workplace or people that you're speaking to or pitching to, always, always learn whatever you can, but keep an open mind because humans will always surprise you. They're not prescriptive. They will do things that nobody that has studied psychology for 600 years has even thought that they'd do. And it's evolving all the time. So look at it, study it, but don't use it as magical tricks or mind reading techniques because you will come a cropper. That's, I think, fantastic advice. And I have to say, Judy, I've gotten so much out of this conversation. I'm absolutely going to go pick up that book. Um, I think this is just such yeah. valuable information for anyone, really, in any situation. Thank you. It's been lovely talking to you. Thank you, Judy. Thanks, Judy. Cody, I legit bought the book, The Body Language Bible. I've been reading it, and it is so interesting. Me too. And you know what, Brooke? We should start a Judy James book club. <gasps> That's such a good idea. <laughs> that would be amazing. Yeah. I really hope this interview helped our listeners learn more about the social psychology of planning. If you want to learn more or learn more about the additional resources we mentioned, including the book, head on over to cvent.com slash podcast. We put the links in the episode description. And of course, we want to hear more about what you want to learn about. So email us at podcast at cvent.com and tell us what topics you want us to explore. Or maybe you're an expert. Let us know. We'll have you on the podcast. Yeah, we'll see you next week for another great episode. We'll talk to you then. Bye.